kind of study up a little more on the text during this week. And before I get into our text, I want to make an observation. With four Gospels, we often get the rest of the story. Paul Harvey was famous for his the rest of the story as he would unfold an account for us and you'd be kind of spellbound waiting to hear what the punchline was of a particular news item. And I think the Gospels provide that for us. Give us a different witness, a different perspective, a different point of view that is helpful as we read God's Word. So, for example, you know, what happens after this story in Matthew's account? It doesn't occur in Mark's account of this story. Jesus comes walking on the water. They are afraid. Jesus says, just chill. Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be scared of here. And what's next in Matthew? In chapter 14 of Matthew, verses 27 and following, we have the story of Peter talking to the Savior and inviting him to call him out of the boat and stepping out of the boat and in faith taking, we don't know how many steps, doesn't appear too many. And then all of a sudden, the circumstances of life around him, the storm and everything, got the best of him. He took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. And immediately, Jesus reaches a hand out to him. And we don't have that story in Mark's gospel. And it makes me kind of wonder, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm, you know, it's one of my trademarks here, as I've shared with you. And, you know, why is the word abbreviated such a long word? Hmm. It makes you kind of think, you know. Or why is it the doctors call what they do practice? <laughs> that instills confidence, doesn't it? And kind of the same way here in the text, you kind of wonder. We do know that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. So Matthew and Luke, when they wrote their Gospels, had Mark's Gospel in hand quite probably or had heard it taught in their worship services. So they kind of knew what Mark's story was. And now I want you to think back for just a minute, quiz time for those of you that uh, went through our Mark series before Pastor Kirk came here. And by the way, we want to be in prayer for our pastor, Pastor Kurt, and also for uh, Pastor Greg, our um, senior high youth director and worship director. They are both in Colorado, uh, suffering for Jesus at the uh, Covenant Midwinter Conference for Pastors. Every time I get to go, it's in Chicago in February, and it's just not a good time to be back there, but they get to go to Colorado. <laughs> no envy or any problems here at all. So I want you to think back. Who is the apostle behind the Gospel of Mark? Anybody know? Call out the name. Well, this is great. I, my teaching is very effective. It really stuck. The, the apostle Peter is thought to be the apostle behind this gospel. Mark was not a disciple per se. We don't know exactly how old Mark is or was during the walk with Christ and so on, if he was one of the followers periodically, but he's not one of the actual disciples. Uh, but he writes an account. We believe it's John Mark, and we believe that he writes the account of uh, Peter's story of what he witnessed. And so 
here, this is Peter's gospel. So old Peter kind of conveniently forgets to mention this part of the story that Matthew tells us. And I can imagine Matthew reading this story in, in Mark's gospel and recalling Peter sinking under the waves of the, of the lake and so on and kind of thinking, you turkey, <laughs> no way you're getting away with not telling this story here. We're going to fill in the blanks here a little bit and tell you the rest of the story about what happened. I've got to fill in this story. Uh, no getting off the hook on this one, Peter. And so Matthew gives us the rest of the story. I want to explore three questions with you today. Point number two on the outline, if you're following that. And the first question is, why were they out in this storm anyway? Why were they out in this kind of tempestuous sea of Galilee? And in verse 45 of our text, in Mark, uh, Mark's gospel, chapter 6, In verse 45, it says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went to a mountainside to pray. And so we see Mark's favorite word that he uses to keep the action going immediately. You know, so it's just kind of bang, bang, bang. Next thing, quick, I want to go and get this covered. I want to cover this. And you kind of sense Mark's enthusiasm there. And uh, it says there that Jesus made them go. In the Greek, it's to compel them or to order them, to give them a command to go and to take this time. And if you think about this, that's just what happened. If you remember back in verses 31 and 32 in uh, our sermon about the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' intent for them at that point was to get a little bit of R&R, a little bit of rest and relaxation. And, uh, but that didn't quite occur. It didn't come off the way they had planned because all these people beat them around to the punch there. And, uh, and so we have the miraculous story of feeding and providing for these people. Um, it certainly was not the boat ride to the lonely place that Jesus had anticipated for them. And so then he sends them on another boat ride. And while Jesus finishes cleaning up after the crowd and so on, uh, they, they go. And so tired, kind of exhausted, the disciples obey. They head out to the Sea of Galilee uh, uh, in the boat there. And uh, as we've told you before, the Sea of Galilee can be fairly temperamental at times. Storms come up quickly and winds blow. And a lot of times it'll be a wind not going the direction that you're trying to sail or row. And in verse 48 here, it says, the wind was against them. Now, we don't notice a particularly brisk storm or anything like that, but the winds were pushing against them as they're trying to make progress across to Bethsaida. And not only that, but Jesus has, uh, was watching them, we read in verse 47. It was evening, uh, and you kind of wonder how long had he been watching them, rowing against the wind, straining against the oars. And about the fourth watch, about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus went out to them. And that's kind of a curious phrase that follows here. It says, and they were straining at the oars. And he watches them straining at the oars. And then he was about to pass them by. Another intriguing phrase, you know. Beep, beep, passing lane, you know, go on by as he's kind of jogging along there and so on. You know, what was that all about? He was going to pass them by. But notice that the disciples were exactly where Jesus wanted them. Exactly where Jesus wanted them. 
He knew exactly the situation that they were in. And why would Jesus do this? Why? Well, we don't exactly know or understand. It doesn't fill in all the blanks here and so on. But he's done it before, back in chapter 4. He was sleeping in the back of the boat. A lot of help he was that time as well. And the disciples literally feared for their lives. That was a huge storm. They were fearing for their lives. And some of them were experienced fishermen that had been on that sea before. So you knew this had to be a bad storm. Or in chapter 6, verse 6, when Jesus sends them out, seemingly inadequate, seemingly ill-prepared, he sends them out to go and to share the good news. And so under-equipped and ill-prepared, Jesus seems to do this a lot to his disciples. But why? And I would contend it's because this is discipleship boot camp. This is discipleship boot camp where Jesus is testing the mettle of his followers. And I believe that Jesus is still doing that today. He's training them as he is training us today. And soon he'd no longer be with the disciples and he isn't with us, at least in the bodily form that he was 2,000 years ago. He's still sending his disciples out into stormy situations in life. He still calls us into circumstances beyond our control. He still uh, requires us to be straining at the oars in life situations. Seemingly not making much headway as we strain against those oars. Inadequate in our own strength but acting obediently, simply following what Jesus says and how Jesus calls us and what he asks us to do. There's a story that's told about a man who was sleeping in his cabin one night, and suddenly the room was filled with light, and God appeared. And the Lord told the man that he had a job for him to do. He showed him a large rock out in front of his cabin, and the Lord explained that the man was to push against the rock with all his might. And so, this the man did, day after day, and actually for many years, he toiled from sunup to sundown, his shoulders set squarely against the cold massive surface of this unmoving rock, pushing with all his might. Each night, the man returned to his cabin, sore and worn out, and feeling like the whole day had been spent in vain. And since the man was showing signs of discouragement, the adversary, Satan, decided to enter the picture by placing thoughts in his weary mind. You have been pushing against this rock, Satan said, and it's not moved. Thus, he gave the man the impression that the task was impossible and that he was a failure. These thoughts discouraged and disheartened the man even more. And Satan said, well, why kill yourself over this? Just put in your time and give the minimum effort. That would be good enough. That's what the weary man planned to do. But he decided that he'd take the matter to prayer first and He'd take his troubles to his Lord. And Lord, he said, I have labored long and hard in your service, putting my all, all of my strength to do what you have asked me. And yet after this time, I have not even budged this rock, even a half a millimeter. What is wrong? Why am I failing? Have you been there? Have you been there? The Lord responded compassionately, My friend, when I asked you to serve me, you accepted. I told you your task was to push against the rock with all your strength, which you have done. Never once did I mention to you that I expected you to move it. Your task was to push. And now you've come to me with all your strength spent, thinking that you have failed? But is that really so? Look at yourself. 
Your arms are strong and muscled. Your back sinewy and brown. Your hands are callous from the constant pressure. Your legs have become massive and are hard and strong. Through opposition you have grown much and your abilities now surpass that which you used to have. True, you haven't moved the rock. But your calling was to be obedient and to push and to exercise your faith and to trust my wisdom. And that you have done. Now I, my friend, I will move the rock. At times when we hear the word of God, we tend to use our intellect to decipher what he wants when actually God wants us simply to be obedient and in faith to follow him. By all means, exercise the faith that moves mountains, but know that it is still God who moves the mountains. Have you ever tried to open a jar? And your spouse offers, you know, and they take the lid off. What's your first thing you say? I loosened it for you. And the punchline of this story, this parable, modern-day parable, is that uh, we need to all continue to push in life. And push means to pray until something happens. Push means to pray until something happens. God will reveal himself when he is ready. He just asks for us to be obedient. And when Jesus tells us to get into the boat and go, what do you do? Yes, sir. Were you all aboard? That's the response of a disciple. Let me ask, is there a storm in your life? Is there adverse winds and weather conditions out there in your life right now? You're working like crazy to solve it, but you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. You prayed, and God knows that you prayed, and you've pushed that rock. You're certain that you heard the Lord rightly. You're trying to be obedient. You're trying to follow God's call. You're trying to follow his leading. You're straining at the oars of life's circumstances and not a zip, nothing. The comfort that I find in our text is that we need to be patient when we are living for our Lord and following our Lord. Because you see, sometimes God sends you into a storm, but often when we are at our weakest, at our worst, our most exhausted, when you've depleted your own resources, there's nothing more seemingly that you can do. It is then, it is then that God is able to reach us, that God is able to teach us, that God is able to demonstrate his power, to show his love, to give his grace. Leads me to the second question. What was their response when Jesus appeared in the midst of the storm? How did they respond when Jesus appeared in the midst of the storm? Were the disciples comforted? You know, were they overcome with peace and calm? Oh, good, Jesus is here. No, that's not their response at all. The answer is in verse 49 and 50 that they were scared spitless, basically. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. How else could you explain it? And this was prior to all the special effects of Lucas and other film directors and so on that we have today. This was the real deal. It was amazing. And they thought they were seeing this ghost. And Jesus got 
a, a little alone time with God, praying, conversing with God. In verse 48, he was having his time with God, and it ends, and he sees his disciples straining at the oars, and Jesus had his eyes on them. He wasn't going to let things get out of hand. About 3 a.m., his conversation time with God is completed, and so he's going to cross the lake and rendezvous with his disciples. They had the boat, so he walks across the lake. Just what you would do, right? Was he coming to save them? Not really. Was he coming to rescue them? No, it doesn't appear so. He was about to pass them by. He was going to walk on by. They didn't need saving, and unlike the storm in Mark chapter 4, here they're just working hard against some adverse conditions. But they spot him. There's Jesus walking across the water, and they begin to freak out. Uh, who's gonna, who would blame them? And fishermen are a little bit of a superstitious lot anyway. It's in the middle of the night. You're exhausted. You've been working hard at the oars. You're bone tired. You see someone with no boat <laughs> just strolling on the lake. And I think we'd all be scared too. Utterly astounded, amazed is the Greek word that is used there. And Jesus says, hey guys, it's me. He climbs into the boat with them. And they just couldn't take it all in. It was just too much. It was overload. I've heard sermons on this text saying that Jesus comes into our stormy times to take us to a peaceful place. He saves us. He rescues us from those times. Now, we know for sure that Christ does sometimes do that, but that isn't what he always does, and that's why sometimes we're kind of disappointed because we expect that he would rescue us. He would save us. But that's not what the text says. It says, first, Jesus sent them into the adverse winds. And secondly, when it was the disciples became afraid, when, they, when was it? It was when they saw Jesus. When Jesus shows up, then they're terrified. Uh, friends, sometimes, sometimes when Jesus shows up in our lives, it's frightening. The power, the awesomeness of our almighty God showing up in our lives, it's, it can be frightening. I spoke to somebody this week who said that God spoke to them. had given them kind of a, a spiritual wake-up call that they needed to change things around in their life. They needed to get right with their Lord. And, uh, and this person just wanted me to pray with them that they would live a more Christ-like life. And you see, Christ may challenge you and I to do something that seems too difficult, to push that rock, that next step in spiritual growth, to let go of something, a hurt, a, a hang-up, a habit that we have, that we need to let go of. And our response is, God, quit meddling. God, just leave it alone. God, I want to hang on to that. And so we respond by trying to domesticate Jesus, by trying to put him in our box so he fits into our lives when we want him to and where we want him to. But sometimes Jesus brings a storm. Sometimes Jesus brings adversity to test us, to grow us, to strengthen us. What will you do when Jesus says go? What will you do when Jesus says do some things differently in your life? and how you live your life. Change is a good thing. 
Go with it. What will you do? What if God says, trust me, trust me. Trust me with your time and the use of it. Trust me in your giving of your finances. Trust me in how you treat your spouse, how you treat your children, how you treat your parents, how you treat your neighbors, how you treat others, how you treat your Christian brothers and sisters in your church. Trust me in giving up some bad habits that you may have in your life. But Jesus may be calling you to something more, something bigger, something new, something fresh. Calling our church to be broadened in our perspective, broadened in our ministry of the gospel. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, present yourselves a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. Put yourself on the altar and allow God to have his way in your life, to give you his grace fully. He wants us to be living sacrifices, and it freaks us out. And we keep crawling off the altar because those sticks and rocks are uncomfortable. And that leads me to question three. After the disciples knew it was Jesus, did they finally relax and chill? No, they didn't. It's interesting that the text says that Jesus came to them, got into the boat in verses 50 and 51, not because he was tired of walking. Jesus saw that they needed him. I wrestled with verses 51 and 52 all week. At first glance, they kind of appear like a page had been somehow misplaced in the order of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark. That somebody had gotten mixed up when they kind of glued that binding together. It doesn't seem to fit here in this story. Think about this a moment. In verse 52, Jesus refers to the loaves. And he says, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. They had missed the point of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. What did the disciples do after everybody was full and fat and happy and so on? What did the disciples do? Remember? They went out in the midst of the people, and what did they do? They took baskets, and they collected 12 baskets full of horsey doobers, hors d'oeuvres for you French people. About 5,000 had eaten, and they didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. Mark must have, have it here for a reason. It must follow this incident for a reason as Jesus is ministering in this discipleship training seminar The feeding of the 5,000 was a teachable moment and apparently the teaching lesson. And if any of you that are teachers have had these moments, you know, where you think you've done a particularly good job like I did earlier in the sermon and, uh, you know, of educating people and it goes right over their head. They miss it. It didn't compute. They totally didn't get it. They see Jesus and they're terrified. Jesus says, chill out, just chill and they are still in their hyper-astounded, amazed mode, adrenaline pumping. They didn't get it. And when we don't get something, especially the supernatural that God is wanting to do, we shore up our defenses. We harden our hearts. We explain away 
God's miracles? Could they connect the dots? Can this Jesus, who just hours prior took five biscuits and two fishes and provided sub-sandwiches for 5,000 plus people, can this same Jesus take care of me now in my circumstances, in my life, in the boat in which I am? Could we just relax in Jesus' care to rest in him, to lean on the everlasting arms? The all-powerful Jesus is in their boat and is in your boat. Recall my previous sermon, peanut butter and jelly, after everybody had been served, the disciples get these baskets of bread. And it's a reminder of how awesome Jesus is. And I want you to think this through. Go with me on this one for a moment. Jesus takes care of our needs. He provides and then some. Do you think they'd already eaten all the leftovers? I don't think so. They were fat and happy. They had just been fed. I'm sure they grabbed a couple of extra subways. There were leftovers in the baskets. So what about those baskets? Did they leave them behind? They were a poor lot of people, and baskets cost money. No, I suspect they were taking the baskets with them. Do you think they just dumped the food all over the place? No, I have a feeling that those baskets were sitting in the boat full of food, leftovers. Probably sitting right beside them, each one of them. Twelve baskets of memories. Memories of God's provision. Memories of God's teaching. Memories of how God had worked before. Memories of, oh my gosh, he just fed 5,000 people and I don't trust him now to take care of a little breeze that's pushing against me as I'm rowing across in life. So think about it. What are your baskets of memories full of? What are the leftover thoughts and remembrances in your baskets of memory? The prayers, God's powerful work, God's lavish provision, a significant event or person, maybe a mountaintop experience, a gift of a wonderful spouse or a wonderful friend in your life, the miracle of that child or that grandchild or great-grandchild born, a miracle of healing like 15 years ago and the doctor said I had less than six months to live. Neener, neener, I'm still here. (laughs) And just to think in that basket of memories as I take that loaf of cancer out and to realize I wouldn't have gotten to know all of you. And that would have been a loss because you've been a joy to get to know. God's blessings when you finally decided to give of your finances, your abilities, your time when he asks and calls on you. Or the way that your brother or sisters of this church wrap loving arms around you and loved you into God's arms. What fills your basket of memories? The faithful track record of God in your past will not fail you in your season of storm or adversity. Jesus says, take courage. When you are straining at the oars of life, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And so, push. 
pray until something happens. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word that teaches us how to be the disciples you want us to be. Break the hardness of our hearts, Lord. Help us to claim the memories of your track record, your faithfulness, your grace overflowing and abundant, that we might claim that in our day-to-day lives. God, we now give a token in our tithes and our offerings to you, and we put our lives back on the altar again as a living sacrifice to you. And we pray that even as you did with the loaves and the fishes and even as you calm the sea, Lord, that you will provide for us and calm our fears. And so we give with cheerful hearts this morning. In your name, amen.